0: The show dedicated to stories holds the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. To hear news, reviews, discussion, and of course stories, I'm your host, Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater and those great sound effects in the background provided by my cast of turkeys. As you recall, I um, have been booted out of the studio by my one-year-old daughter and uh, taking Radio Drum Revival out to The outside world here uh, in Alfred, Maine, uh, a little bit less drizzly than it was last week when I was recording this. Actually, beautiful day to say a sunset to the summer months. So uh, thank you again for joining me for another exploration of modern audio theater. And today, we are very pleased to be welcoming back our friends of Chatterbox Audio Theatre. They got a new release, hit my inbox this morning, and sometimes uh, kind of serendipity lines up where I can get something right on the show, and uh, that is the case with this new piece called The Necklace, uh, also La Parure if my French is not too astonishingly bad. Um, Chatterbox actually released this show, it is the same show, um, but uh, one is in French and other is in English, so uh, this is interesting. i uh I probably should ask Bob Arnold this, like how much actual French language audio drama is out there, but uh, not very much that I have heard, and certainly not a lot produced by a Memphis, Tennessee-based production company. So, uh, real fun to be able to play this for you. It is based on Guy de, de Montpensons uh, classic short story, The Necklace, um, or La um uh, a collaboration with the Foreign Language Department of Rhodes College, and uh, as you you know heard, we also played Prison Stories, uh, maybe almost a year ago now, by Chatterbox. Uh, Chatter Chatterbox does a lot of really interesting stories, classic adaptations, uh, their own original work as the prison stories is kind of this whole other crazy collaborative project as, as is this uh, collaborative project with the Rhodes College uh, Language Department. Um, and that's one of the kind of unique, interesting things that uh, Chatterbox is doing. Chatterbox is doing a great job of integrating with other organizations, uh, being really relevant to the Memphis community, uh, Memphis community, you know, in some ways they're a community theater but with radio drama and online, and for the world, but they're also uh, there's a real Memphis culture component of that, and I think uh, you know, they're just a fantastic example. They've uh, evolved and, and uh, over the years and have done so much from uh, the for us uh, the internet listeners, but also so much in their community, um, and really proud of everything they put out, and uh, proud to be able to share this uh, show with you today. Um, and I also uh, before we get into it, should would would be horrible if I did not announce they also are doing an evening with Ira Glass in Memphis. October 5th at 8 p.m. Um, there's a special offer for Chatterbox listeners. i sure they won't mind we put a link to that offer on RadiodramaRevival.com, which is where you'll find it. So if you're anywhere in the south and feel like traveling out to Memphis, uh, you can spend some time with Hourglass uh, with Chatterbox Audio Theater on October 5th. Um, October, that means that uh, Audio Horror is coming soon, Halloween. All of our uh, scary, spooky programming is just around the corner. Um, I was speaking with Scott Hickey last night at the Grist Mill. Uh, he is doing his this first live show in Chelmsford, Mass in early Octo- uh, October 28th or 29th, whatever that Sunday is before Halloween. I'm going to be there. I can't wait to see it. It's uh, 3 in the afternoon, um, and actually my f- uh, grandparents are live in Chelmsford, uh, so I'll have a chance to have a family visit and see this uh, great show by, uh, <laughs> by Scott uh, right there in uh, Chelmsford uh, coming up in a few more weeks and uh, we're going to have all kinds of great uh, horror material here for you on Radio Drum Revival. Uh, I... Uh, i think we're going to bring bringing back transcontinental terror there's been a little bit of doubt but there's sort of a, a popular demand aspect to it uh, i should mention that last week's show I uh, f- for the first time in a while i said my email address fred at radiodramarevival.com and got a ton of listener response so I, f- I forget that you're all out there but uh do let me know it really is a very appreciative gesture if i can hear from you uh, time to time what you think of the show and what we're playing fred at radiodramarevival.com especially as we get into into Halloween horror. If you want to hear uh, Transcontinental Terror happen, uh, vote it up. (laughs) Email me, Fred, at radiodramarevival.com. Say that your life will be incomplete unless Transcontinental Terror 2013 happens. Make it happen for you. Okay. Uh, Without further ado, we are on to The Necklace la Perule. We're going to play The Necklace, the English version, in its entirety. And then after that, a short excerpt of the French, just so you can hear kind of how it sounds like and how the same work can be adapted in two languages from our friends at Chatterbox.
1: Chatterbox Audio Theater presents The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant.
2: She was one of those pretty and charming girls born, as if by some error of fate, into a family of minor civil servants. She had no dowry, no expectations, no means of meeting a man of wealth and distinction who would understand, love, and wed her. So she let herself be married off to a low level clerk in the Ministry of Education. Her tastes were simple, for she had never been able to afford anything better but she was unhappy, as if she had married beneath her station. Women have neither caste nor class, and if they are not of noble birth, they can still use their beauty, grace, and charm as calling cards. A woman's natural guile, her instinctive elegance, and her talent for repartee are her only marks of rank, so that a poor girl with no lineage may easily be on a level with the highest lady in the land. She suffered endlessly, for she felt she was intended for a life of refinement and luxury. She suffered because of the run-down apartment they lived in, the peeling walls, the battered chairs, and the ugly curtains. All these things, which other women of her station may not even have noticed, tormented her and insulted her pride. The spectacle of the young Briton girl who did the household chores stirred sad regrets and impossible fancies. She dreamed of silent antechambers hung with oriental tapestries— lit by tall, bronze candelabras, and of two tall footmen in knee-breeches dozing in the huge armchairs, overcome by the heavy heat of the stove. She dreamed of vast drawing-rooms dressed with antique silks, exquisite pieces of furniture displaying priceless ornaments, and of small, charming, perfumed sitting-rooms created just for tea-time gatherings of one's most intimate friends, who would be the most famous and sought-after personalities of the day, men whose attentions were much coveted and desired by all women. When she sat down to dinner at the round table, covered with a three-day-old cloth, opposite her husband who always lifted the lid of the soup tureen and declared delightedly,
3: Ah, beef stew. Splendid. There's nothing I like better than a nice stew.
2: She dreamed of elegant
4: dinners. Gleaming silverware, and of being surrounded by hanging tapestries representing mythical characters and strange birds in enchanted forests. She dreamed of exquisite dishes served on fabulous china plates, of hearing flirtatious compliments whispered into her ear while she maintained an inscrutable smile and ate the rosy flesh of a trout or the delicate
2: wings of a grouse. She had no fine dresses, no jewelry. Nothing. And that was all she cared about. She felt that she had been made for such things. She would have given anything to be noticed, to be envied, to be attractive and in demand. She had a rich friend, a classmate from her convent school, on whom she never called now, for she was always so unhappy when she returned home. For days on end, she would weep tears of sorrow, regret, despair, and anguish. One evening, her husband came home, looking highly pleased with himself, holding a large envelope.
3: Look, I have something for you.
4: The Minister of Education and Madame Georges Rompono request the pleasure of the company of Monsieur and Madame Loiselle at the Ministry Ball on the evening of Monday, January 18th.
3: What do you want me to do with this? Why, darling, I thought you'd be pleased. You never go anywhere, and it's an opportunity, a splendid opportunity. I had the hardest time getting a hold of an invitation. Everybody's after them. They're very much in demand, and not many are handed out to us clerks. You'll get to see all the important people there. But what am I supposed to
2: wear if I go?
3: What about the dress you wear for the theater? It looks all right to me.
2: The words died in his throat. He was totally disconcerted, dismayed by the sight of his wife, who had begun to cry. Two large tears ran slowly down from the corners of her eyes towards the sides of her mouth.
3: What's the matter?
2: What's the matter with you? Making a supreme effort, she controlled her tears, and wiping her damp cheeks, replied in a calm voice,
4: Nothing's the matter. It's just that I haven't got anything to wear, and so I can't go to this ball. Give the invitation to one of your colleagues with a wife who's better off for clothes than
3: I am. Please, Mathilde. What would it cost to get something suitable that would do for other occasions? Something fairly simple.
2: She thought for a few moments, working out a budget in her mind, but also wondering how much she could decently ask for, without drawing an immediate refusal and a horrified protest from her husband, who was careful with his money.
4: I can't say precisely, but I, I believe I could do it
2: on 400 francs? He turned slightly pale, For this was exactly the amount he had been saving to buy himself a shotgun for the following summer. He had planned on joining some friends who spent their Sundays shooting larks in the lowlands of Nanterre.
3: Very well, I'll give you your 400 francs, but try to find a nice dress.
2: The day of the party drew near, and Madame Loiselle seemed sad, worried, and anxious. Her dress was ready, however. One evening, her husband said to her,
3: What's wrong? You have been acting very strangely these last few days.
2: It bothers me that I don't have
4: a single piece of jewelry, not one stone, that I can put on. I'll look completely drab. I would almost rather not go to the party.
3: Why don't you wear a few flowers? It's very elegant at this time of year. For ten francs, you could get two or three magnificent roses.
4: No, there's nothing more humiliating than looking poor when you're surrounded by rich women.
3: How silly you are. Go and see your friend, Madame Forestier, and ask her to lend you some jewelry. You know her well enough for that.
4: You're right. I never thought of that.
2: The next day, she called on her friend and told her all about her problem. Madame Forestier went over to her dressing table, took out a large box, brought it over, unlocked it, and said, "'Choose whatever you like.'" At first, she saw some
4: bracelets. Then, a string of pearls and a Venetian cross made of gold and gems of exquisite workmanship. She tried on a few necklaces before the mirror, Hesitating, reluctant to take them
1: off and give them back. Do you have anything else? Yes, of course. Go ahead and keep searching. I don't know what you're looking
2: for. All of a sudden, she discovered, in a black satin case, a superb diamond necklace. (gasps) Her heart began to beat wildly with desire. Her hands trembled as she picked it up. She fastened it around her throat over her high-necked dress and sat looking at herself in rapture. Could
4: you lend
2: me this? Nothing else, just this. Yes, certainly. She threw her arms around her friend, kissing her extravagantly, and then ran home, taking her treasure with her. The day of the party arrived. Madame Loisel was a success.
4: She was the prettiest woman there. Elegant, graceful, radiant, and wonderfully happy.
3: All the men looked at her, inquired who she was, and asked to be introduced. All the cabinet secretaries and undersecretaries wanted to waltz with her. Even the minister noticed her.
4: She danced ecstatically, wildly intoxicated with pleasure, giving no thought to anything else in the triumphant celebration of her beauty and her glorious success. She floated on a cloud of happiness made up of the universal homage and admiration she received, of the desire she had aroused, and the sense of complete victory
2: so sweet to a woman's heart. She left at about four in the morning Since midnight, her husband had been dozing in a small, empty side room with three other gentlemen whose wives were having a wonderful time. He helped her put on the coat, which he had fetched when it was time to go, a commonplace everyday coat, strikingly at odds with the elegance of her dress. It brought her down to earth, and she was anxious to hurry away in order to avoid being noticed by the other women who were wrapping themselves up in their rich furs.
3: Wait, wait! You'll catch cold outside. Let me go and catch a cab.
2: But she refused to listen to him and ran quickly down the stairs. When they were outside in the street, there was no cab in sight. They began looking for one, hailing all the cabbies they saw driving by in the distance. They walked down to the River Seine in desperation, shivering with cold. At last, they found on the embankment one of those age-old hackney cabs, which only emerge in Paris after dark as if ashamed to parade their poverty in the full light of day. It brought them back to their front door in the Rue des Martyrs, and they sadly walked up to their apartment. It
4: was all over for her.
3: And he was thinking he would have to be back at the ministry at ten.
2: Standing in front of the mirror, she took off the coat she had been wearing over her shoulders to get one last look at herself in all her glory. But suddenly she gave a cry. (gasps) The necklace was no longer around her neck.
4: I, I, Madame Forestier's necklace, I I don't have it
3: anymore.
2: What? How? But that's impossible. They searched in the pleats of her dress, in the folds of her coat, and in her pockets. They looked everywhere. They could not find it.
3: Are you sure you still had it on you when you left the ballroom?
2: Yes. I remember touching it in the entrance hall.
3: But if you had lost it in the street, we'd have heard it fall. So it must be in the cab. That's right. That's probably
2: it. Did you get the cab's number?
3: No. Did you happen to notice it?
2: No. They looked at each other in total dismay. Finally, Loiselle started to get dressed again.
3: I'm going to go back the way we came to see if I can find it.
2: And he went out. She remained as she was, still wearing her evening gown, not having the strength to go to bed, sitting disconsolately on a chair by the empty grate, her mind a-blank. Her husband returned at about seven o'clock. He had found nothing. He went to the police station, to the newspapers where he advertised a reward, toward the cab companies, and tried every possible place where the faintest of hopes compelled him to go. She waited for him all day long in the same distracted condition, thinking of the appalling catastrophe that had befallen them. Loisel came back that evening, his face lined and pale. He had not come up with anything.
3: You'll have to write to your friend and tell her you broke the clasp on her necklace and that you are getting it repaired. That'll give us time to work out what we'll have to do next.
2: She took down his dictation. A week later, they had lost all hope.
3: We must see about replacing the necklace.
2: The next day, they took the case in which the necklace had come and called on the jeweler whose name was inside. He looked through his registry and told him that he was not the one who had sold it and that he must have only supplied the case. They then went from jeweler to jeweler, looking for another necklace just like the first one, trying to remember it, both of them ill with remorse and worry. In a shop in the Palais Royal, they found a string of diamonds that seemed to them completely identical to the one they were looking for. It was worth 40,000 francs. The jeweler was prepared to let them have it for 36,000. They asked him not to sell it for three days, and they got him to agree to take it back for 34,000 if the one that had been lost had been returned before the end of February.
3: Loisel had 18,000 francs, which his father had left him. He would have to borrow the rest. He borrowed the money.
2: A thousand francs here.
1: Five hundred there.
3: Sometimes he borrowed five louis.
1: Other times as little as three. He signed promissory notes.
3: Agreed to pay exorbitant rates of interest.
1: Did business with
4: usurers. And the whole tribe of moneylenders.
3: He mortgaged the rest of his life. Signed papers without knowing if he would ever be able to honor his commitments. And then, sick with worry about the future, frightened by the grim poverty which stood ready to pounce, and by the prospect of the physical deprivation and mental torture laying ahead, he went to the jewelers to get the new necklace and put down on the counter 36,000 francs.
2: When Madame Loisel took the necklace back, Madame Forestier said in a huff, You should really have brought it back sooner. I might have needed it. She did not open the case, as her friend had feared she might. If she had noticed the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she not have taken her for a thief? Madame Loiselle came to know the ghastly life of those coping with abject poverty. From the very first, she resigned herself to what she could not alter and behaved heroically. Their appalling debt would have to be repaid. She was determined to pay. They dismissed the maid. They moved out of their apartment.
3: They rented a top-floor garret.
1: She became used to heavy domestic work and the distasteful kitchen chores. She washed the dirty dishes, wearing down her pink nails while scrubbing
4: greasy pots and the bottom of saucepans.
3: She washed the dirty linen, the shirts and the tablecloth by hand, and hung them to dry on a line.
1: Every morning, she took the garbage down to the street and carried the water up the stairs, pausing to catch her breath on each landing.
4: And... Dressed like any working-class woman, she shopped at the fruit sellers, the grocers... And
3: the butchers, with a basket on her arm, haggling, taking in verbal abuse, fighting over every wretched penny.
4: Every month, they had to pay off some notes, renew others, and bargain for time.
3: Her husband worked in the evenings, keeping the books for a shopkeeper, and often at night did copying work for five sous a page.
2: They lived like this for ten years. At the end of ten years, they had repaid everything, every single franc, including the creditor's charges and the accumulation of compounded interest. Madame Loisel looked old now. She had turned into a kind of battling, hard, coarse housewife who rules working-class homes. Her hair was untidy, her skirts were askew, and her skin was red. She spoke in a loud voice and scrubbed floors on her hands and knees.
4: But sometimes, when her husband had gone to the office, she would sit by the window and think of that evening so long ago when she had been so beautiful and so admired. What would have happened had she not lost the necklace? Who could tell? Who could possibly tell? Life is so strange, so fickle. How remarkable that the slightest little thing can make or break us.
2: One Sunday, needing a break from her heavy working week, she went out for a walk on the Champs-Élysées. Suddenly she caught sight of a woman pushing a child in a stroller. It was Madame Forestier, still young, still beautiful, and still attractive. Madame Loiselle felt apprehensive. Should she speak to her? Yes, certainly. Now that she had paid in full, she would tell her everything. Why not? She went up to her. Hello, Jeanne. The friend didn't recognize her and was taken aback at being addressed so familiarly by a common woman in the street.
1: But I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know. <laughs> There's some mistake. No mistake. It's me, Mathilde Loiselle. But my poor Mathilde, how you have changed.
4: Yes, I've been through some hard times since I last saw you. Very hard times. And it was all on your
1: account. On my account?
4: Whatever do you mean? Do you remember that diamond necklace you lent me to go to the ministry ball? Yes. What about it? Well, I lost it. Lost it? But you returned it to me. No. I returned another necklace just like it. And for the last ten years, we've been paying for it. You know, it wasn't easy for us. We had nothing. But it's over now, and done with, and I'm very glad indeed. You mean you bought a diamond necklace to replace mine? Yes, and you never noticed the difference, did you? They were exactly alike.
2: Mathilde smiled a proud, innocent smile. Madame Forestier looked very upset, and taking both her hands, she said, Oh, my poor Mathilde but
1: it was only a fake, an imitation. It could not have been worth much more than 500 francs. You have been listening to Chatterbox Audio Theatre's production of The Necklace by Guy de Maupassant, featuring Margaret Macaulay as the narrator, Laura Loth as Mathilde Loisel, Alex Novikov as Monsieur Loisel, and Iris Laverdon as Madame Forestier. Music by Catherine Whitfield. Sound effects by Iris Laverdon. Produced by Robert Arnold. Adapted and directed by Shira Malkin and Karen Strawn. Elle fut this simple, is Shira Malkin. ne pouvant être parée, mais malheureuse comme une déclassée. Car les femmes n'ont point de caste ni de race, leur beauté, leur grâce et leur charme, leur servant de naissance et de famille. Leur finesse native, leur instinct d'élégance, leur souplesse d'esprit sont leur seule hiérarchie et font des filles du peuple les égales des plus grandes dames. Elle souffrait sans cesse, se sentant née pour toutes les délicatesses et tous les luxes. Elle souffrait de la pauvreté de son logement, de la misère des murs, de l'usure des sièges, de la laideur des étoffes. Toutes ces choses, dont une autre femme de sa caste ne se serait même pas aperçue, la torturaient et l'indignaient. La vue de la petite Bretonne qui faisait son humble ménage éveillait en elle des regrets désolés et des rêves éperdus. Elle songeait aux antichambres muettes, capitonnées avec des tentures orientales éclairées par de hautes torchères de bronze, et aux deux grands valets en culottes courtes qui dorment dans les larges fauteuils, assoupis par la chaleur lourde du calorifère. Elle songeait aux grands salons vêtus de soie ancienne, aux meubles fins portant des bibelots inestimables, et aux petits salons coqués, parfumés, faits pour la causerie de cinq heures avec les amis les plus intimes, les hommes connus et recherchés, dont toutes les femmes envient et désirent l'attention. Quand elle s'asseyait pour dîner, devant la table ronde couverte d'une nappe de trois jours, en face de son mari qui découvrait la soupière, en déclarant d'un air enchanté...
3: Ah, le bon pot au feu Je ne sais rien de meilleur que cela
4: Elle songeait au dîner fin, aux argenteries reluisantes, aux tapisseries peuplant les murailles de personnages anciens et d'oiseaux étranges au milieu d'une forêt de ferries. Elle songeait aux plats exquis servis en des vaisselles merveilleuses aux galanteries chuchotées et écoutées avec un sourire de sphinx
1: tout en mangeant la chair rose d'une tuite ou des ailes de jolies notes. Elle n'avait pas de toilette pas de bijoux, rien et elle n'aimait que cela. elle se sentait faite pour cela. Elle eût tant désiré plaire, être enviée, être séduisante et recherchée. Elle avait une amie riche. Une camarade de couvent qu'elle ne voulait plus aller voir, tant elle souffrait en revenant. Et elle pleurait pendant des jours entiers, de chagrin, de regret, de désespoir et de détresse.
0: And that was The Necklace, uh, followed immediately by a short clip from Le Perreur, the French version of the same tale by Guy de Montpeuçon, produced by Chatterbox Audio Theatre in collaboration with Rhodes college hope you enjoyed that of course chatterbox for more of their shows um, chatterbox has done a ton of great stuff they also do their own halloween programming uh, october is coming up um, and uh, yeah great picks uh, i will try to get some short list of great horror material from our archives to share with you a lot of people have asked about that there is of course a lot of horror in our archives without us even doing the new stuff which we will be releasing for you here in a couple more weeks uh, i do have one more week of september <laughs> before that happens uh, but we will uh can't wait October is kind of our uh, the, the, the quintessential radio drama time of year. It is our favorite season. Uh, so looking forward to that as we do every year. And of course, uh, 200 plus hours of archives at radiodramarevival.com Follow us on Twitter at radiodrama Facebook.com forward slash revival. and search iTunes or Stitcher for radio drama Revival. Um, love to get your reviews, comments, uh, pluses, minuses uh, posted there. Get more people listening to this wonderful thing called Modern Audio Theater. And that's a wrap for this week. Radio Drum Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalgh. copyright of individual shows, remains that are original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you'd like. Radio Drum Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG FM. It is podcast at Radiodramarevival.com as Labor of love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week.